Welcome to the Grizzly Times podcast with Louisa Wilcox, a place devoted to all things grizzly, where we interview scientists, managers, Native Americans, and others about their perspectives and experience with bears and their ecosystems. This comes at a critical time in a complex debate about grizzly bears, with a recent restoration of endangered species safeguards for the Yellowstone bear, but a new proposal to strip protections for glaciers grizzlies, and when warming temperatures and development are transforming the bear's world. We hope that you find the information and views offered here useful as you shape your own conclusions. This is Louisa Wilcox with Grizzly Times, and I'm delighted to be here today with Lou Bruno. Lou is a teacher, naturalist, and advocate for wild places with a special love for the Badger Two Medicine Country next to Glacier National Park. The Badger Two Medicine lies in the heart of grizzly bear habitat, and it's been called the backbone of the world by the Blackfeet. But it's threatened by energy development and rampant off-road vehicle use. 35 years ago, Lou started the Glacier Two Medicine Alliance to advocate for the protection of the badger, and their group has proven remarkably effective at a difficult time for conservation. Lou, thanks for being here today. Oh, you're welcome. Glad so to do you're it. celebrating a, a major victory in your 35-year campaign to save the badger with a recent announcement that oil and gas leases in the heart of the wild will be permanently retired. Why is that win so important? Well, it's important because um, uh, as long as those leases exist, uh, we just have to keep uh, basically putting out spot fires, you know, um, uh, uh, on a case-by-case basis. In fact, one of them does still exist, the original one that started our group in the first place, you know, still is there. Um, the government has is still committed to, supposedly committed to upholding their ability to cancel it, but under these, in these times, we don't know how strong that commitment is, you know. Right. <laughs> we have our doubts. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it's definitely a victory to have the, the, you know, there are only two of them left, and the one was just just uh, bought out uh, so but we still have the other one you know and we are hopeful that uh, that we can get a good ruling on that and get it put to bed for good and then we work on permanent protection right we'll, you know? we'll get back to that in a bit yeah yeah so Lou you hail from New York City which about is about <laughs> as far as you can get from the wilds of the Rocky Mountains front that's definitely How did you true find your way there well, it was um, it was uh, basically an accident, you know. I came out to major in wildlife biology at the U at, at U of M in 1965, and uh, when I first laid eyes on the front, I was on a field trip uh, the next spring to uh, the Sun River Game Range and uh, and uh, 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 Freeze Out Lake and. Uh, and I had this magical experience on the game range. I was, uh, in those days, there was a bunkhouse uh, for uh, uh, work, work crew, you know, and staff and that. And our class stayed in the bunkhouse. And, of course, in the middle of the night, I had to get up and pee. And, 
And it was a full moon, and I walked out of the bunkhouse, and there on the far slopes was a herd of elk, probably wow. 20 or 30 elk, and mm. and in the moon, in the full moonlight. And uh, I think that was when the first uh, the, the front started weaving its spell on me, you know. But <laughs> but at the time. I never thought that, and, and, and all that day, you know, I, I remember it feeling like the plains of Africa because there were huge herds of mule deer, 40, 50, 60 herds of mule deer, uh, deer uh, 40, 50, 60 head of mule deer in each herd and elk, and I'd seen all this stuff, and I was a new kid from New York, and then we went to freeze out, you know, and saw the snow geese, and Everything conspired to make me fall in love with the place, but I never thought at the time that it was really a livable place, you know, that that it was any place that people should live at because it was so severe, you know. Mm-hmm. And and where do I wind up a few years later? Probably the most severe part of the front, you know. Right. And and that was mainly because I needed a job, you know. I was in Big Fork the year before. Uh, that was really at the in those days. That was where I wanted to be, you know, out of the wind and in the big timber, and and I still have an affinity for that. But I basically moved here for the job, and I felt like um, I was being exiled to Siberia. You know, it was uh, cold and harsh as it is today. <laughs> Wind's blowing mm-hmm. again. Big surprise. And uh, and so I just. Uh, wound up here, you know, and then again, it conspired, it, it started weaving its spell on me, you know, I, like I said in my, uh, in the thing I wrote up, you know, I start, I would, people would ask me, how do you drive that road every day? And I'm, and I would, people weren't from here, you know, to go to school and come back from school. And they had no idea what I would see, you know, um, I would, you know, I was often driving home at 4.30 after school between 4 and 4.30, and the sun would be setting behind the mountains and lighting up the snow that was blowing off the peaks and, and putting glow up in the clouds. And it's just magical when it's like that. You know, it's, it's extremely harsh, but it's incredibly magical. And sometimes the, the whole prairie would be suffused in that glow, you know, and snow was blowing across the road and the prairie was in constant movement because the the drifts were blowing across the prairie Mm -hmm. you know it's uh, i don't know it's like and when you get when you start getting when you start seeing that and getting used to that you miss it when you're away from it almost Mm -hmm. you know it's it's weird (laughs) so i it's hard to explain you know but i always say you know it reminds me of some, and believe, believe me, I've never been a drug addict, but it reminds me of, of being on crack because it's so good when it's good, and it's mm-hmm. so magical to see those things mm-hmm. that are that are missing when I go to Missoula, you know, uh, right. that I miss it when I'm away from it, you know, mm-hmm. and I wonder like what I'm, what am I missing, you know, like when am I missing those those times when the snow is blowing off the peaks and being lit up like that in that light and or when I'm missing a really good sunny day on the front, you know. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's yeah. how I wound up here. <laughs> 
So, so you describe a night uh, 35 years ago when a friend inspired you to attend a meeting with the Forest Service on oil and gas leasing along the Rocky Mountain front. Uh-huh. And you say that your notion of public lands management about protecting the public trust was shattered. Yeah. Can you share what happened and what you did in response? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, I was, uh, it was, um, it was in November, and I think, to, I think, as I'm remembering, it was Thanksgiving week, you know, and this for the for, and so somebody knocked on my door, a person that lives out that that has some land out there, uh, in the, on the edge of the Badger, and asked to use my telephone because she didn't have a, a phone where she lived. It was before the days of cell phones, of course, and uh, and uh, she told me that there was a meeting at the community hall where they were taking public comment about this uh, this uh, application for a permit to drill, you know. And I didn't know much about it except that uh, the previous summer we had been subjected to. Um, all, hearing all of these blasts and helicopters flying back and forth because they were doing all this seismic work back in there. And they were staying in town at some of the motels, you know, and flying in and out of these motels. And and so I, so I thought, well, and she wanted to use my phone so that she could call people because they advertised it very poorly. I didn't, I had no idea about it and neither did anybody else. And also... The majority of the teachers were gone because they were gone for Thanksgiving, you know. Um, so it was a really poor time, and the weather was terrible. So it was a really poor time to get public comment. So I was kind of dubious at first, all uh, anyway, you know. And then I went to this meeting, and Chuck Jonkel was there, and I've met, I had met Chuck a few times because he's been up on the reservation. He had been up on the reservation. Uh, trying to basically, um, you know, foster conservation on the reservation and and work with the grizzly bear and stuff like that, and and also Bill Cunningham was there, I think, and uh, from MWA, and Montana uh, Wilderness Association. Yes, yes, and uh, and um, <clears throat> so uh, from. Uh, while that was all going on, you know, they were telling us things like um, um, they uh, they would they, the decision hadn't been made yet, and they weren't really committed to it yet. They were just getting public comment. They were acting like they were basically just doing it as the the goodness of their heart. Uh, never mind that they were supposed to do it, you know, and. Uh, and uh, they were telling us these things, and meanwhile Chuck was whispering in my ear and going, "No, they're lying," you know. <laughs> and, and so was Bill Cunningham. And by the time the meeting was over, we were so angry at them, you know. And and I, you know, I was before that. I was one of those people that used the woods, you know. I I I've, I've always been oriented towards the woods, even though I grew up in the city. I moved out here because. I saw every little speck of of a natural country I knew totally destroyed, and I didn't want to have to see that again, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I uh, so I basically I, and I basically thought, you know, I I saw the clear cuts and some of the decisions around Missoula, you know, and, and Kalispell, and I thought, well, who am I to question their management? 
abilities. They have the public trust to manage those lands, and they probably they probably know what they're doing. And so I basically gave them all a pass. And then when I found out that they were not following that they were not following their mandate, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, their man. And I always quote this: their mandate says for the greatest good for the most people for the longest period of time, you know. Mm-hmm. And and so their mandate is to manage these these lands wisely for the public and they're messing up, you know. And and I could use stronger language, but and it made me very very angry, you know. I felt very violated and uh you know because I do like I've told you before, I do believe that they're that they're that they're right now anyway it's still a democracy in this country and that people and democracy does work if people make it work for them but the problem is that a lot of people don't believe that there is a democracy and that they can't do anything you know and and i feel like when you adopt that attitude then you're dead in the water at the very start you know if you believe that you can't affect change or make any difference, then you never will, you know? <laughs> yeah, so, so you obviously did try to take things into your own hands and make democracy work um, in forming the Glacier Two Medicine Alliance. I did. I did. And you described and, that it was a magical time. What made it so? Oh, you know, well, shortly after that meeting, uh, you know, the MWA had their annual, their annual gathering uh, uh, every, I think it was always the first week of December, you know, and uh, in different cities. And I think that time it was either in Butte or Helena. It had to have been because I remember going down in that direction. And so, you know, Bill, advised, Bill uh, uh, urged me to go to... Um, to go to an MWA convention, and I think the Sedlaks were there at that meeting too, maybe Art or maybe Elaine or both, um, um, at the meeting in, in East Glacier. And uh, so, and Chuck and the Sedlaks were planning to be there, and they said, you know, if you go to this meeting, we'll int- I'll introduce you to some people that maybe can help you, you know, because we had not a clue about how to form a group, uh, what we could do about it. All we knew was that we needed to do something. Our backs were against the wall, you know. And I walked into MWA, and uh, that first day, I I didn't know a soul because Chuck wasn't there. Bill had, it was the time when uh, there was some strife with Bill, and they fired him as their... Uh, Huh. As as their employee, you know, so there was a lot of bad blood between the, him and MWA at the time, and uh, so he wasn't there. The Sedlaks weren't there, and Chuck wasn't there until the next day. And that first day, uh, there I was, plunked in the middle of you know three hundred something people that I didn't know, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, I had no idea who to talk to or how to start up a conversation with all of these people. I had no clue about, but I remember sitting in the back row and watching, I think Doris Milner and Bill Bishop were both, uh, and possibly Phil Tawney, were um, basically officiating at the 
at the convention and and I was so blown away by them and the other people I saw and I remember you know the the brass cup awards and and thinking god you know how would it be to to be involved in something so noble as advocacy for the land and to be recognized for it, you know, never dreaming that it would happen to me, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I just sat, and that's what I meant about the glory days, you know, because these that was those were the days when all the luminaries were still alive, you know, the Baldwins and and uh, you know, um, Posowitz, Posowitz was, was very active too, and you know, all of the big names. That justifiably so, the big names in the wilderness movement of this state and the environmental movement, you know. And the more people I met, the more I was just blown away by them, you know. And the ironic thing was that they, when they came to know me, they changed my life because they recognized skills that I had that I didn't know I had, you know. Huh. And and uh, and in fact in fact and to the point where it's like they embraced embraced me and my issue so strongly that 2 years later i was vice president of that organization and oh. the the next year i was president you know <laughs> that's how that's how i went from not knowing the soul to <laughs> And then see what what happened too was the next day. Then Chuck showed up, and and uh, the Sedlaks showed up, and they introduced me to people. And everybody had some way they could help me. You know, John Frederick was there from the North Fork Preservation Association, and he loaned me their Constitution and Bylaws because they had just started up a year or two beforehand. And so we applied for his 501c3 status. We we had help doing that. Um, Chuck introduced me to Jasper Carlton. Uh, I don't know if you remember him, yeah. uh, but he um, oh coached me about how to how to write a letter to the Forest Service, a letter of uh, of concern, you know, and and other people taught me how to write to congressmen and representatives, you know, it was all something that I had absolutely no knowledge of and nobody else did either in the group, you know. And yeah, uh, so you mentioned Chuck so Donkel several times. And obviously, yeah. you know, he was a giant of grizzly bear research and conservation, but but Chuck and John Craighead and John Weaver Grizzly bear experts for whom grizzlies really define not only the wilderness but the whole northern continental divide ecosystem and the front. Maybe you can share a bit about your connection to grizzlies and perhaps a bit more about how these scientists may have influenced your work. Yeah. Well, you know, my dream was always to be a wildlife biologist. Um, and uh, I had to give up that dream because during the, during those times, you know, in the 60s, um, uh, it was really hard to get a job. Um, they were focusing more on women and minorities, and and my grades weren't as great as good as they could have been. And so, in the middle of my senior year, I gave it up. You know, but mm. I was always um, I was always attracted to people that were involved in that in those issues. You know, and mm-hmm. and. Uh, and the grizzly, to me, I feel about the grizzly the way I do about birding, too, you know, is that they're not the end-all and be-all, but they are 
are they're an integral part of this ecosystem, you know. And I'm also just as interested in plants and birds and other things, you know. Right. But the grizzly, as the keystone species, of course, has an extreme important role. And uh, and um, I love the fact that they're here and that, you know, I live in country where I could walk down the road and run into one. Um, I've never seen one actually right here, and I've seen mm-hmm. tracks in my driveway. I just found tracks a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but and and I it also all of us here uh, uh, kind of uh, look disdainfully at the people of. Farther south on the front, or the people farther out on the prairie that are saying they're under siege because there are grizzlies around, and we're going, "Come on, give me a break!" They're, I mean, they're here, but they're not waiting behind every tree to jump pounce on you or your children, you know. <laughs> so, you know, we live with them every day. We take precautions, uh, thanks to the tribe and Dan Carney. Uh, we know the precautions we need to take with our bird feeders and our our uh, compost and things like that. You know, um, uh, we just know, and we're glad to do it. As as long as everyone I know is glad to do it, as far as my neighbors here, um, just because we like the fact that we live in grizzly country. You know, and we appreciate the fact that they're here. You know, and. And there are so, and I feel like, you know what, if you don't like it, there's 99.9% of the rest of the country that you could live in without grizzlies, you know. So you mentioned the tribes a moment ago, and (laughs) the tribes were central to a a powerful coalition that you helped to develop with ranchers and sportsmen and conservationists and others who have persevered with this campaign to protect the badger for so long. And the coalition is seen by many as a model for how conservation can and should be done. Maybe you can share a bit about what it's like with such a diverse group of people (laughs) and why you think the campaign serves as a model for other advocates. Well, I think, you know, our advantage here is that we're local, you know, and we all work in the community, like uh, Kendall, our, Kendall Flint, our previous president, uh, was a, uh, uh, an OBGYN at the hospital and has delivered a gazillion babies, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and I taught in the, community, in the Browning community for 20 years. Uh, lots of those kids are now, you know, that I had as fourth or fifth graders are now at least middle age. I keep telling them you could at least have just have been grown up. You don't have to be middle age, you know, <laughs> to make me feel old, you know. But but anyway, um, so um, I think uh, through those years, you know, uh, as a result of that, you wind up um, building a trust with some of them, you know, and uh, they respect you for the work you've done in the community and. Uh, and with them personally, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think that helps us a lot. And, you know, sometimes we don't see eye to eye about certain things, but we can, I'm not going to say we, uh, we uh, what's the word, compromise, you know, um, and we don't, um, 
we don't do the kinds of things MWA does with collaboration, you know, where we give up um, the cer- certain lands that we think are important, you know. But, right. but um, and, you know, we've had a lot to... We've had a lot to put up with in in our dealings with the Blackfeet because at times they haven't seen eye to eye with us over certain things. You know, um, mm-hmm. you know there was a time when they did not have a game code or a game season, and anything mm-hmm. that came out of the park was shot. And uh, you know things have changed remarkably since then, and uh, so. Um, and now they're talking a reservation-wide land use plan, possibly a Blackfeet Park along the foothills yeah. of Glacier. Uh, they're talking about free-roaming bison, uh, re- retiring the the uh, uh, cattle leases they have in the foothills, you know, and, and reestablishing a free-roaming bison herd that wanders in and out of Glacier and the Badger Tumet and the reservation. And so... You know, all of those are really, really exciting things, you know, that, you know, I always say this country, as opposed to a lot of the rest of the country, is on the upbeat and on the upswing as far as environment because it's had previous abuses and those abuses are like previous abuses like a lot of ATVing. And uh, that's pretty much gone now, although there's people violating it. They're just violating it. It's not like it's gone. It's crazy like it used to be, you know. Right. So, and the cattle leases are still there. The cattle are grazing in the foothills and pretty heavily. But mm-hmm. we're hoping that that eventually is a thing of the past, too, you know. Hmm. So, yeah. Well, in the course of your work, um, you describe a high point um, in Shoto, Montana, on the front, uh, 2015 (laughs) meeting, um, when the National Historic Preservation Council, which has authority over culturally important places like the Badger, heard testimony on what people thought about oil and gas development. Maybe you can describe what happened there and how that night changed the course of your work. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, that meeting typified to me what inspired me, one of the things that inspired me about MWA years ago, you know, and that was that the people that came, there were, oh, I'm terrible with numbers, but I think there were 70-something people that testified that day Mm -hmm. and at that meeting, and they were from every walk of life you could possibly imagine on the front, you know, in Montana. And and that was the way MWA was at the time, you know. It was like they were they weren't just a bunch of granolas. They were ranchers, teachers, doctors, you know, every profession you could possibly think of. And and that's the way it was at that meeting, you know. And the meeting reminded me of what inspired me about the very first um, convention that I went to in Helena and Butte, you know. And that is that. You know, constantly people would get up one after the other and from their point of view talk about how important it was to keep the badger wild and to keep oil and gas development out. And these were Native Americans, they were veterans, they were uh, farmers and ranchers, they were conservationists, everyone you could think of, you know. And when you look at that broad spectrum of Montana society, 
all all wanting having the same value system as you do you know it's pretty powerful you know like i used to go i spent 25 years going to every single mwa convention uh, every year because it was to me like my one time a year my one weekend a year where i could go to a different planet where everybody had my value system you know <laughs> so and that what this that's what this was all about out of those 70 something people that testified the only person that was pro oil and gas was the lawyer for Solonex <laughs> you know <laughs> you know there was uh and and you know c- continually somebody would get up there that looked redneck you know with a cowboy hat or some old lady with a moo-moo or whatever, and I'm going, these people are going to, they're definitely going to be pro-oil and gas, and they never were. They were, they all had their own take on it, you know, and they were all, and they were all pro, pro-environment, pro you know, keeping the front the way it is. So, so it was so very inspirational. Yeah, I, I'm just curious if you think that the work that you've been doing up there has brought out voices for existing values, or do you think the values themselves are changing? Uh, you know, I think the values exist here. You know, I've always said that about the Blackfeet. That that you know, if you went to if you went to Shoto and did a poll about wanting uh, uh, and asked people if they wanted the land to stay in its its current status, I think you would get many more people on the Blackfeet reservation that would say yes rather than the people in Shoto. You know. And, uh, and because I think it's, you know, despite the fact that they're, um, that they've diversified, you know, and uh, that the population's diversified, it's still, it's still deep down part of their culture, you know, um, and, uh, and uh, a lot of people have different takes on it, you know, some of them think, some of them feel that they still that the badger that the Blackfeet still own the badger. Uh, some of them feel that uh, they should have co-management. Some feel like they should have complete management of it. You know, there's all different diversity, and some feel like they want it developed for oil and gas. You know, and 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 the thing that frustrates me is that people want to people. You know, racism is. It rears its head in a lot of strange ways, you know, and mm. and one way is when people look at the Blackfeet and say, well, they're all environmentalists, so like, uh, you know, they're uh, they're uh, they all have this connection with the land, and and they they're all pro conservation, and that's not that's not honoring their diversity as a people, you know, um, it's just like calling them all drunks or all child molesters or you know, all good for nothing, you know. You can't you can't take any population and say they're all this or that. It's not being fair to their to their diversity, you know. So anyway, so but I but I do feel that that, that feeling has been there um, even with people that uh you know, poached or broke the law. Um, you know, as far as game management, uh, the feelings, the the connection has always been there. You know, um, so with a, with a lot of people, I'm not saying everybody, but you know, it 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 
just runs a whole different. It it just runs all the, the whole spectrum, you know, just as it does with white folks, you know. So. Yeah. Well, you've obviously gotten a few steps closer to your vision for full protection for the badger with the decision by Moncrief Oil to essentially retire their leases. And, of course, that leaves the problematic company Solanax, which so far has been resisting the same. Are you optimistic that you will prevail with this last holdout? And and what are your thoughts now about full protection for the badger? Uh, I firmly believe that we will prevail because, you know, the case law is there. Um, There were two previous cases with uh, which was the Bob Marshall Alliance versus Watt, which was farther south on the front, and the Connor v. Burford decision in the Flathead, that both where both judges ruled that the leases were illegal because they were leased with a perfunctory EA, a cookie-cutter EA, and that's basically the way these, these leases happened. They were all that way during the Reagan administration when the whole front was leased. And... And when the um, when the um, um, uh, judge ruled against us on the Solonix case, he did not address the legality of those leases. He he uh, of the Moncrief lease on the Solonix lease, and he just um, uh, he just his decision was totally based on the fact that the government kept the. The oil company waiting for thirty something years, you know, and uh, and so I firmly believe that if that case goes before a panel of judges, not a single judge, but before a panel of judges, which it's supposed to do, that they will rule in our favor because because uh, uh, that court has, I guess, is split right down the middle as far as conservatives and liberals and you know pro. Pro uh, pro environment judges and anti environment judges. You know, I I am alarmed by things that have happened in the Trump administration. You know, with uh, William Penley Perry and uh, or Perry Penley and uh, oh I forget his name. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and Bernhardt. You know, I mean, talk about putting the fox in charge of the hen house, but. Um, but and let's see something else. You what else did you ask me? I forgot. Well, um, what are your thoughts on uh, about full protection of the badger? You know, obviously, given that there's yeah, cultural sensitivity. I, I believe that the bad that the tribe should have co-management. You know, um, I think uh, it's only right. Uh, they, you know, their uh, spiritual connection with it has not been uh, traditionally has not been addressed by the agencies, and uh, I'm not saying that they should have unfettered management of the Badger 2 medicine, but I think it's a good deal if they um, have a strong role, you know, um, uh, a small, a strong role with oversight, you know, and that's mm-hmm. the key is oversight. You know, right. I, I, uh, I often say, you know, um, that the the thing it's it's fine if things are on paper, um, but and in legislation. But the next step is making sure everybody follows the rules. You know, um, because like right now we have 
we have technically we have no uh, motorized vehicle access, and yet it's obvious that people are accessing it. Uh, it's not rampant, but uh, if you walk on the landscape, you can see uh, signs of it. You know, so anyway. So, Lou, as a teacher. Mm-hmm. You're increasingly finding yourself imparting the lessons you've learned to younger generations, including yeah. students with groups like the Wild Rockies Institute. Yeah. What is your main message to them? My main message to them, and I, I think this is why they keep asking me to talk to them, you know, I think if there's any group that shows what can happen with grassroots advocacy, it's our group, you know, and and what what I want to impair, on the, what I impair, not impair, <laughs> what I want to impress on these kids is that the process can work if you believe it can work and if you're, you're persistent at it, you know, because these kids come to me and it's very inspirational for me to talk to them because uh, it gives me hope that there is a future for this country you know, and 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 that there are people that think beyond the box, and and sometimes you know they ask me some pretty tough questions, you know, uh, but it shows that they're 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 thinking and processing it, and and they're driven to, to they're driven to do something about it, but but they don't know what direction they can go, you know, and and um, so. I want them to believe that they can find, I always tell them, you know, find what you're good at. Um, don't do the things you're not good at because chances are you're going to be ineffective, but find the things that you are good at, which was what I always told my students, you know, and go for the gusto with it. If you're a good artist or if you're a good writer or if you're a good mechanic, go with those things, you know, and and because that's what happened to me, you know, it's like I didn't know that I, you know, I'm a total schmaltz. And, and because I'm gay, you know, I thought I always, I always thought that that was a bad thing, you know, that because it was, I was supposed to be a man and be tough and, and be, be a brick, you know. <laughs> and, and, and I found that the fact that I'm sensitive and that I get tears in my eyes when I talk about things that are passionate to me, is not something that's bad and not something to be ashamed of. It's something that moves people and that I can take those things and make them work for the environment, you know. And and that's what everybody needs to do is find find what they're good at and and do the most you can with it, you know. And sometimes it's hard to find the correct path you know it's it's always and it's always difficult for me you know it's always difficult to, for me to find uh, to figure out you know how like how strident I should be and how um, you know how what somehow sometimes I have to give some things a pass in order to accomplish the greater good you know it's it's always I mean you know it's you've been involved too it's it's always a difficult thing you know to figure it out but but first and foremost, I want them to know that they can make a difference, you know, because I didn't, I had no idea that I could way back then, you know, mm-hmm. so. I love this bit that you wrote in a piece um, that I'd like to share. 
um, you said, when it all comes down to it, it's really not about me or you. It's about all the other creatures of the earth and their right to have the wild places to carry out their lives in the way they've evolved to live. Yeah. Can you expand on this? Well, you know, it's very disturbing to for all of us, I'm sure. I'm sure you're in the same boat, you know, to see to see the assault that's happening on this planet, you know, I I um I was just reading this thing or hearing this thing about Jimmy Carter, you know, and the fact that when he was born, since he's been was born, he's 90, I forget 90, 90 in his mid 90s. And uh since he was born, the world population is four times as big as it was back then, you know. Yeah. And the stressful thing to me is that we've, you know, on one hand, we've learned a lot. We're not, you know, we're not shooting predators. Uh, we're not equating good animals and bad animals and shooting predators on sight. And we're not, uh, you know, it's like when I was a kid, you could shoot hawks and owls and anything like that on sight. And... And, you know, we've learned that the wolf, many of us have learned that the wolf and the grizzly has a place and have places in the ecosystem. And, and you know, even more than that, we've learned a lot scientifically. But it's, but it's, it's all being negated by, by the, the overpopulation of this world, you know, and, and also by what we're doing uh, in climate change, you know. And... And it's frustrating to me to see that, um, to see that uh, uh, that the future. I, I don't see. I just worry that enough people are going to get a clue, and and change it all. You know, and make real attempts to deal with population and and climate change. Because as far as I'm concerned. Every single issue, environmental issue, boils down to that. You know, mm-hmm. if we, if all of us eat the right things and conserve the right things and do everything we can to minimize our impact on the earth, it will still not come to any good until we get a, a handle on the overpopulation of this earth. And I feel, and I, and I, and I feel, and and I, I uh, equate that. I bring that back to the feeling about these creatures. You know that 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 it's not okay for us in the name of progress or in this, the name of, uh, of 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 man to always say, well, these people, these creatures have to step back and deal with us. You know, and go out of existence because. It's all about us. And to me, it's not about me. You know, it's like I'm 74 years old. Do you think I could climb and hike to any place in the Badger I want these days? But it doesn't matter to me, you know. I mean, there's got lots of places in Glacier and lots of places in the Badger I'm never going to see. But, but just, But is it right for me just because of my, you know, the short time that I'm on this earth, is it right for me to not... To, to impact all of these creatures and permanently impact the land and the landscape 
because of me, just me. You know, it's it's just it's, you know, and I don't I don't know how else to express it. You know, yeah. Um, because it's not all about me. How could it be? Why okay. why would it be? You yeah. know. So, yeah, the antithesis I think of the current culture is a sense of humility, which is what you're articulating, and that it isn't about me. I guess so, you know, and even if I was bound, you know, even if I live to 95 and I'll be bound to a wheelchair, you know, I'm still going to advocate for wild places, you know, because it's it's not about that at all. It's not about my ability to recreate, for God's sake, you know. (laughs) So... Well, speaking of your age, Lou, uh, you, you described you, earlier today um, that how much you learned from the old guard, you know, people like Bill Cunningham and Chuck Jonkel, and now you're part of the old guard. I know. How do you hope the new guard <laughs> That's scary. is... scary. I know. <laughs> Me too. How do you hope the new guard uh, will orient to the challenges? Uh, say that again. How do you hope the new guard will orient to the challenges we're leaving behind? Well, I hope that they'll again have the keep in mind the same mantra that I have that I just told you about. You know that that it won't just be about them and, and about their recreation, but about a value system that revolves around wild things and wild places. You know, I mean, I'm sitting right here looking up up at at Glacier in my front window here and. And uh, you know, just the fact that I know there are mountain sheep at the top of that, at the top of that ridge, and there there could be a wolf pack just over the ridge on the left side, is is really powerful and inspiring to me. And 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 uh, you know, and I and I hope that that people can, that the new guard can. Uh, Continue, uh, continue to have that philosophy, you know, that it's not just about them recreating; that it's about it's about the planet and the and the land, you know, and keeping it the way it is. I mean, you know, I I feel the thing I feel too is, you know, I know as a as a biologist that you know somehow this planet is not going to die completely. You know, there's is some form that it's going to exist in somehow, but is it the form that we really want it to exist in eventually, you know? So. Well, Lou, I can't thank you enough. This has been wonderful. Um, so thank you, Lou. This is Louisa Wilcox with Lou Bruno and Grizzly Times. Thank you.